Section 3 of The Descent of Man, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Ballard Johansson. The Descent of Man, Part 1, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 2. On the Manner of Development of Man from Some Lower Form. Part 1. Variability of Body and Mind in Man. Inheritance. Causes of Variability. Laws of variation the same in man as in the lower animals, direct action of the conditions of life, effects of the increased use and disuse of parts, arrested development, reversion, correlated variation, rate of increase, checks to increase, natural selection, man the most dominant animal in the world, importance of his corporeal structure, the causes which have led to his becoming erect, consequent changes of structure, decrease in size of the canine teeth, increased size and altered shape of the skull, nakedness, absence of a tail, defenseless condition of man. It is manifest that man is now subject to much variability. No two individuals of the same race are quite alike. We may compare millions of faces, and each will be distinct. There is an equally great amount of diversity in proportions and dimensions of the various parts of the body, the length of the legs being one of the most variable points. Although in some quarters of the world an elongated skull, and in other quarters a short skull prevails, yet there is great diversity of shape even within the limits of the same race, as with the aborigines of America and South Australia. The latter a race probably as pure and homogeneous in blood, customs, and language as any in existence, and even with the inhabitants of so confined an area as the Sandwich Islands. An eminent dentist assures me that there is nearly as much diversity in the teeth as in the features. The chief arteries so frequently run in abnormal courses that it has been found useful for surgical purposes to calculate from 1,040 corpses how often each course prevails. The muscles are eminently variable. Thus, those of the foot were found by Professor Turner not to be strictly alike in any two out of 50 bodies, and in some the deviations were considerable. He adds that the power of performing the appropriate movements must have been modified in accordance with the several deviations. Mr. J. Wood has recorded the occurrence of 295 muscular variations in 36 subjects, and in another set of the same number no less than 558 variations, those occurring on both sides of the body being only reckoned as one. In the last set, not one body out of the 36 was found totally wanting in departures from a standard description of the muscular system given in the anatomical textbooks. A single body presented the extraordinary number of 25 distinct abnormalities. The same muscle sometimes varies in many ways. Thus, Professor McAllister describes no less than 20 distinct variations in the palmaris accessoris. The famous old anatomist Wolf insists that the internal viscera are more variable than the external parts. Nulla particula est quae non aliter et aliter in alias se habiet hominibus. He has even written a treatise on the choice of typical examples of the viscera for representation, a discussion on the bow ideal of the liver, lungs, kidneys, etc., as of the human face divine, sounds strange to our ears. The variability or diversity of the mental faculties in men of the same race, not to mention the greater differences between the men of distinct race, is so notorious that not a word need here be said. So it is with the lower animals. All who have had charge of menageries admit this fact, and we see it plainly in our dogs and other domestic animals. 
Brim especially insists that each individual monkey of those which he kept tame in Africa had its own peculiar disposition and temper. He mentions one baboon remarkable for its high intelligence, and the keepers in the zoological gardens pointed out to me a monkey belonging to the New World Division equally remarkable for intelligence. Renger also insists on the diversity in the various mental characters of the monkeys of the same species which he kept in Paraguay. And this diversity, as he adds, is partly innate and partly the result of the manner in which they have been treated or educated. I have elsewhere so fully discussed the subject of inheritance that I need here add hardly anything. A greater number of facts have been collected with respect to the transmission of the most trifling, as well as the most important characters in man, than in any of the lower animals, though the facts are copious enough with respect to the latter. So in regard to mental qualities, their transmission is manifest in our dogs, horses, and other domestic animals, besides special tastes and habits, general intelligence, courage, bad and good temper, etc., are certainly transmitted. With man, we see similar facts in almost every family, and we now know, through the admirable labors of Mr. Galton, the genius which implies a wonderfully complex combination of high faculties tends to be inherited, and on the other hand, it is too certain that insanity and deteriorated mental powers likewise run in families. With respect to the causes of variability, we are in all cases very ignorant, but we can see that in man, as in the lower animals, they stand in some relation to the conditions to which each species has been exposed during several generations. Domesticated animals vary more than those in a state of nature, and this is apparently due to the diversified and changing nature of the conditions to which they have been subjected. In this respect, the different races of man resemble domesticated animals, and so do the individuals of the same race, when inhabiting a very wide area like that of America. We see the influence of diversified conditions in the more civilized nations, for the members belonging to different grades of ranks and following different occupations present a greater range of character than do the members of the barbarous nations. But the uniformity of savages has often been exaggerated, and in some cases can hardly be said to exist. Mr. Bates remarks with respect to the Indians of the same South American tribe, no two of them were at all similar in the shape of the head. One man had an oval visage with fine features, and another was quite Mongolian in breadth and prominence of cheek, spread of nostrils, and ubiquity of eyes. It is, nevertheless, an error to speak of man, even if we look only to the conditions to which he has been exposed, as far more domesticated than any other animal. Some savage races, such as the Australians, are not exposed to more diversified conditions than are many species which have a wide range. In another and much more important respect, man differs widely from any strictly domesticated animal, for his breeding has never long been controlled, either by methodical or unconscious selection. No race or body of men has been so completely subjugated by other men as that certain individuals should be preserved and thus unconsciously selected from somehow excelling in utility to their masters. Nor have certain male and female individuals been intentionally picked out and matched, except in the well-known case of the Prussian grenadiers. And in this case, man obeyed, as might have been expected, the law of methodical selection, for it is asserted that many tall men were reared in the villages inhabited by the grenadiers and their tall wives. In Sparta, also, a form of selection was followed, for it was enacted that all children should be examined shortly after birth, the well-formed and vigorous being preserved, the others left to perish. It appears also from a passage in Xenophon's memorabilia that it was a well-recognized principle with the Greeks that men ought to select their wives with a view to the health and vigor of their children. The Grecian poet Theogenes, who lived 550 B.C., 
clearly saw how important selection, if carefully applied, would be for the improvement of mankind. He saw likewise that wealth often checks the proper action of sexual selection. He thus writes, With kine and horses, Kernus, we proceed by reasonable rules and choose a breed for profit and increase at any price, of a sound stock without defect or vice. But in the daily matches that we make, the price is everything. For money's sake, men marry. Women are in marriage given, the churl or ruffian that in wealth has thriven, may match his offspring with the proudest race, thus everything is mixed, noble and base. Then in outward manner, form, and mind, you find us a degraded, motley kind. Wonder no more, my friend. The cause is plain, and to lament the consequence is vain. If we consider all the races of man as forming a single species, his range is enormous. But some separate races, as the Americans and Polynesians, have very wide ranges. It is well known law that widely ranging species are much more variable than species with restricted ranges, and the variability of man may with more truth be compared with that of widely ranging species than with that of domesticated animals. Not only does variability appear to be induced in man and the lower animals by the same general causes, but in both the same parts of the body are affected in a closely analogous manner. This has been proved in such detail by Godrin and Catrafage that I need here only refer to their works. Monstrosities, which graduate into slight variations, are likewise so similar in man and the lower animals that the same classification and the same terms can be used for both, as has been shown by Isidore Geoffrey St. Hilaire. In my work on the variation of domestic animals, I have attempted to arrange in a rude fashion the laws of variation under the following heads. The direct and definite action of changed conditions as exhibited by all or nearly all the individuals of the same species, varying in the same manner under the same circumstances. The effects of the long-continued use or disuse of parts. The cohesion of homologous parts. The variability of multiple parts. Compensation of growth. But of this law I have found no good instance in the case of man. The effects of the mechanical pressure of one part on another, as of the pelvis on the cranium of the infant in the womb, arrests of development leading to the diminution or suppression of parts, the reappearance of long-lost characters through reversion, and lastly, correlated variation. All these so-called laws apply equally to man and the lower animals, and most of them even to plants. It would be superfluous here to discuss all of them, but several are so important that they must be treated at considerable length. The direct and definite action of changed conditions. This is the most perplexing subject. It cannot be denied that changed conditions produce some and occasionally a considerable effect on organisms of all kinds, and it seems at first probable that if sufficient time were allowed, this would be the invariable result. But I have failed to obtain clear evidence in favor of this conclusion, and valid reasons may be urged on the other side at least as far as the innumerable structures are concerned, which are adapted for special ends. There can, however, be no doubt that changed conditions induce an almost indefinite amount of fluctuating variability by which the whole organization is rendered in some degree plastic. In the United States, above one million soldiers who served in the late war were measured, and the states in which they were born and reared were recorded. From this astonishing number of observations, it is proved that local influences of some kind act directly on stature. 
and we further learn that the state where the physical growth has in great measure taken place and the state of birth which indicates the ancestry seem to exert a marked influence on the stature for instance it is established that residents in the western states during the years of growth tends to produce increase of stature on the other hand it is certain that with sailors their life delays growth as shown by the great difference between the statures of soldiers and sailors at the ages of seventeen and eighteen years mr b a gould endeavored to ascertain the nature of the influences which thus act on stature but he arrived only at negative results namely that they did not relate to climate the elevation of the land soil nor even in any controlling degree to the abundance or the need of the comforts of life this latter conclusion is directly opposed to that arrived at by Villermay from the statistics of the height of the conscripts in different parts of France. When we compare the difference in stature between the Polynesian chiefs and the lower orders within the same islands, or between the inhabitants of the fertile volcanic and low barren coral islands of the same ocean, there is also a remarkable difference in appearance between the closely allied Hindus inhabiting the upper Ganges and Benga, or again between the Fugians on the eastern and western shores of their country, where the means of subsistence are very different, is scarcely possible to avoid the conclusion that better food and greater comfort do influence stature. But the preceding statements show how difficult it is to arrive at any precise result. Dr. Beddo has lately proved that, with the inhabitants of Britain, residents in towns and certain occupations have a deteriorating influence on height and he infers that the result is to a certain extent inherited, as is likewise the case in the United States. Dr. Beddoe further believes that wherever a race attains its maximum of physical development, it rises highest in energy and moral vigor. Whether external conditions produce any other direct effect on man is not known. It might have been expected that differences of climate would have had a marked influence, inasmuch as the lungs and kidneys are brought into activity under a lower temperature and the liver and skin under a high one. It was formerly thought that the color of the skin and the character of the hair were determined by light or heat, and although it can hardly be denied that some effect is thus produced, almost all observers now agree that the effect has been very small, even after exposure during many ages. But this subject will be more properly discussed when we treat of the different races of mankind. With our domestic animals, there are grounds for believing that cold and damp directly affect the growth of the hair, but I have not met with any evidence on this head in the case of man. Effects of the Increased Use and Disuse of Parts It is well known that use strengthens the muscles in the individual, and complete disuse, or the destruction of the proper nerve, weakens them. When the eye is destroyed, the optic nerve often becomes atrophied. When an artery is tied, the lateral channels increase not only in diameter, but in the thickness and strength of their coats. When one kidney ceases to act from disease, the other increases in size and does double work. Bones increase not only in thickness, but in length from carrying a greater weight. Different occupations, habitually followed, lead to change proportions in the various parts of the body. Thus it was ascertained by the United States Commission that the legs of the sailors employed in the late war were longer by 0.217 of an inch than those of the soldiers, though the sailors were on average shorter men, whilst their arms were shorter by 1.09 of an inch, and therefore out of proportion, shorter in relation to their lesser height. The shortness of the arms is apparently due to their greater use, and is an unexpected result, but sailors chiefly use their arms in pulling, and not in supporting weights. With sailors, 
the girth of the neck and the depth of the instep are greater whilst the circumference of the chest waist and hips is less than in soldiers whether the several foregoing modifications would become hereditary if the same habits of life were followed during many generations is not known but it is probable Ringer attributes the thin legs and thick arms of the Piaguas Indians to successive generations having passed nearly their whole lives in canoes with their lower extremities motionless. Other writers have come to a similar conclusion in analogous cases. According to Krantz, who lived for a long time with the Eskimo, the natives believe that ingenuity and dexterity in seal catching, their highest art and virtue, is hereditary. There is really something in it, for the son of a celebrated seal catcher will distinguish himself though he lost his father in childhood. But in this case, it is mental aptitude, quite as much as bodily structure, which appears to be inherited. It is asserted that the hands of English laborers are at birth larger than those of the gentry. From the correlation which exists, at least in some cases, between the development of the extremities and of the jaws, it is possible that in those classes which do not labor much with their hands and feet, the jaws would be reduced in size from this cause that they are generally smaller and refined and civilized men than in hard-working men or savages is certain but with savages as mr herbert spencer has remarked the greater use of the jaws in chewing coarse uncooked food would act in a direct manner on the masticatory muscles and on the bones to which they are attached in infants long before birth the skin on the soles of the feet is thicker than on any other part of the body and it can hardly be doubted that this is due to the inherited effects of pressure during a long series of generations. It is familiar to everyone that watchmakers and engravers are liable to be short-sighted, whilst men living much out of doors, and especially savages, are generally long-sighted. It is a singular and unexpected fact that sailors are inferior to landsmen in their mean distance of distinct vision. Dr. B. A. Gould has proved this to be the case, and he accounts for it by the ordinary range of vision in sailors being restricted to the length of the vessel and the height of the masts. Short sight and long sight certainly tend to be inherited. The inferiority of Europeans, in comparison with savages, in eyesight and in other senses, is no doubt the accumulated and transmitted effect of lessened use during many generations. For Ringer states that he has repeatedly observed Europeans who have been brought up and spent their whole lives with wild Indians, who nevertheless did not equal them in the sharpness of their senses. The same naturalist observes that the cavities in the skull for the reception of the several sense organs are larger in the American Aborigines than in Europeans, and this probably indicates a corresponding difference in the dimensions of the organs themselves. Blumenbach has also remarked on the larger size of the nasal cavities in the skulls of the American Aborigines and connects this fact with the remarkably acute power of smell. The Mongolians of the plains of northern Asia, according to Pallas, have wonderfully perfect senses, and Pritchard believes that the great breadth of their skulls across the zygomas follows from their highly developed sense organs. The Chequa Indians inhabit the lofty plateau of Peru, and Alcide Dorbigna states that from continually breathing a highly rarefied atmosphere, they have acquired chests and lungs of extraordinary dimensions. The cells, also, of the lungs are larger and more numerous than in Europeans. These observations have been doubted, but Mr. D. Forbes carefully measured many Aymaras, an allied race, living at the height of between 10,000 and 15,000 feet, and he informs me that they differ conspicuously from the men of all other races seen by him in the circumference and length of their bodies. In his table of measurements, the stature of each man is taken at 1,000, and the other measurements are reduced to this standard. It is here seen that the extended arms of the Aymaras are shorter than those of Europeans, and much shorter than those of Negroes. 
the legs are likewise shorter and they present this remarkable peculiarity that in every imera measured the femur is actually shorter than the tibia on an average the length of the femur to that of the tibia is as two hundred eleven to two hundred fifty two whilst in two europeans measured at the same time the femora to the tibiae were as two hundred forty four to two hundred thirty and in three negroes as two hundred fifty eight to two hundred forty one the humerus is likewise shorter relatively to the forearm this shortening of that part of the limb which is nearest to the body appears to be as suggested to me by mr forbes a case of compensation in relation to the greatly increased length of the trunk the imeris presents some other singular points of structure for instance the very small projection of the heel these men are so thoroughly acclimatized to their cold and lofty abode that when formerly carried down by the spaniards to the low eastern plains and when now tempted down by high wages to the gold washings they suffer a frightful rate of mortality nevertheless mr forbes found a few pure families which had survived during two generations and he observed that they still inherited their characteristic peculiarities but it was manifest even without measurement that these peculiarities had all decreased and on measurement their bodies were found not to be so much elongated as those of the men on the high plateau whilst their femora had become somewhat lengthened as had their tibiae although in a less degree the actual measurements may be seen by consulting mr forms memoir from these observations there can i think be no doubt that residence during many generations at a great elevation tends both directly and indirectly to induce inherited modifications in the proportions of the body dr wilkins has lately published an interesting essay showing how domestic animals which live in mountainous regions have their frames modified although man may not have been much modified during the latter stages of his existence through the increased or decreased use of parts the facts now given show that his liability in this respect has not been lost and we positively know that the same law holds good with the lower animals consequently we may infer that when at a remote epoch the progenitors of man were in a transitional state and were changing from quadrupeds into bipeds natural selection would probably have been greatly aided by the inherited effects of the increased or diminished use of the different parts of the body End of section three.